Hi everyone, welcome to Northview Community Church. My name is Thalia, I'm one of the pastors on staff. We're gonna begin our worship service today by singing. We're so thankful that Jerry is leading us today. And we're trusting that as we sing together the truths about who God is and what he has done, it will prepare our hearts and minds for the service ahead. Let's join together in song. Shall I not? 
Welcome to everyone who's watching. Welcome to all our missionaries who are tuning in from all over the world, or maybe you received this link from a family or friend and this is your first time here. Whatever your circumstances, wherever you are, welcome to Northview Community Church. At Northview, I am one of the care pastors on staff. My training is in counseling and my job is to walk alongside people who are going through all kinds of difficult things. And now with COVID-19, that's all of us, myself included. So if you're feeling anxious, or worried or fearful of the future. If you're feeling overwhelmed or frustrated with your circumstances, please know that you're not alone. You're normal. You're not weak or weird. These are very difficult times that we all find ourselves in. And so if you would like some extra support, you're welcome to contact care at northview.org. There is a large team of pastors, elders, staff, community group leaders, and ministry leaders of all kinds who will listen to you and pray for you. Please feel free to contact us. And just as we're suffering together in these tough times, we also want to encourage each other by being together in church online. We are so thankful for this gift of technology. Now there's a few things you'll want to know. If you have kids in your house, you'll want to go to the main page, northview.org, and click on the link to the children's video. You'll find it refreshing and encouraging. And if you love social media, we would love you to post online while you're watching this church service using the hashtag NorthviewTV. And of course, we wanna be connected during the week. We can't physically be connected, but we wanna be connected online. The best way to do that is go to our main page, northview.org. You'll find links to all kinds of blogs and podcasts and resources for whatever stage or age you're in, whether you're kids, youth, young adults, it's not too late to join an online Bible study. You can see blogs and podcasts and articles, all kinds of things by accessing our main page, northview.org. Let's continue worshiping with another song. Straight. 
Pastor Jeff is going to teach us now from God's word. So grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 19, fill up your coffees, and let's get ready to learn. So a number of years ago, I was uh, spending some time with uh, a couple of friends in, in New Zealand. They, uh, they were really good at caving, uh, spelunking is what they called it. And uh, we were going to go in this cave in this area called uh, Waitomo, which is a really got a huge cave system in the middle of the North Island of New Zealand. And I've never been caving before in my life. And uh, we walked through this, this field and we came uh, to a section in the field where there was a hole uh, in, in the ground. It looked just like a sinkhole. And uh, they gave me the, the material and stuff to, to, to descend into the hole, uh, to abseil. I'd never done that before. I abseiled into the hole. When you get down there, it's completely dark. Uh, we were two guys who were experienced cavers, and it was me and my friend Alan were, were with them. And we, we had never been before, and we were just following them wherever it was that they wanted to, to leave, lead us. Uh, immediately, they took off down one, one, uh, one of the tunnels or rabbit holes. Uh, the cave gets really, really dark and closed in at several points. And so, like, it, I, I'm a little claustrophobic, and so I was freaking out a couple times because the cave walls were shoving my, against my shoulders. I remember actually at one point uh, the the cave came down right in front of us and there was water and we had to go under under the the wall and up the other side. But the guys who were with us they they were like, no, we've done this before. We're gonna go <clears throat> underneath and we're gonna go up the other side. We did that and I was like, wow, this is amazing. So about an hour into it, we got to this section where uh, there was a divergence in the path in the cave. There was one one that went down in one direction that looked like it was heading up. That was going to be my choice because I was like, I get, let's get out of here. The other one was going kind of down. And one of the guys who was leading us stood at the thing, at, at the crossroads, and he looked down both places. He turned to his friend. They were whispering. And I said, so what's, what's the problem? And up to this point, I had not been afraid because I was with these people who knew exactly where they're going. But at this particular moment, uh, my, my friend um, said, or the guy who's leading us said, uh, well, that's funny. I've never been here before. And it was in that moment that I freaked out. I turned to my friend Alan and I said, what in the world are we going to do? This is ridiculous. And fear started to rise, you know, in my heart. Anxiety was taking over. Because that's what the way fear works, right? It, it results from the sense that things are out of control. It comes upon us when the people we trust say stuff like, huh, haven't been here before. I, I, this is new to me. I mean, that's what happened. You go to the doctor, and if the doctor is uh, looking at your skin condition, they see the rash, and they go, hmm, that's funny. That's new. And immediately, you're like, what do you mean that's new? That's not the, what? You're, you're given confidence if the doctor has done the surgery before. You're given confidence if he's seen it before and it treats it like, yeah, we've done this, worked with this before. We know how to, how to deal with it. I actually think this is why most of us are afraid right now is because we're in this time where none of us have been here before. I mean, our, our political leaders haven't been here before. Our church leaders haven't been here before. We have no idea what to do with an international pandemic. And yet here we are. And so anxiety has kind of risen up in, in, our, in our hearts and we're afraid because this is all so, so new. Well, speaking of new, uh, John 19 in, in God's Word, verse 16 to 30, records actually what, I, what I'll call the death of God. 
It's where, it's where Jesus is led to the cross and he gets there and he's strapped up to that thing and he, he dies. John records this story with all sorts of imagery that is leading his readers to really engage a lot with the story and learn something about what it is that Jesus is doing there, how he's doing it. And so I want to look at this passage with you. And the reason I want to look at, you, look at it with you is because if there's ever been a new thing that has happened in the history of the world. This one was. Nobody had ever killed God before. Nobody watching on who was a follower of Jesus had ever been in a place where Jesus had, their their true leader had led them down all the right paths up to this point, was now being strung up by, by the Romans. Talk about fear. Talk about anxiety. But as you'll see in this passage, um, none of this was a surprise to God. None of it was a surprise to God. So here's how, here's how I want, want to do this in the next few minutes. Uh, I've got two big points. Number one, it's under control. And, and number two, it's finished. It's under control and it's finished. So here's the first of those. <clears throat> it's under control. Verse 16 of John chapter 19. It'd be great if you could follow along with me. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull which is in Aramaic, Aramaic called Golgotha. It was probably called the place of the skull because of the design of the rocks. At least that's what a lot of scholars think about this. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Now, uh, I've shared before at our church the process of crucifixion, but it's, it's, it's worth reminding you how, how this whole thing played out. Crucifixion was the worst form of Roman execution. I don't know what you'd consider our worst form of execution. I don't really want to think about it too much, but what is, what is the most uh, hateful, vengeful, uh, de- horrible form of, of, of execution that you could possibly imagine that would inflict the most pain and suffering on the object of, of, the, of, the, cru- of the, uh, the killing? Well, that's what crucifixion was. And so it was reserved mostly for notorious criminals. They, they treat Jesus in, in this regard. So here's how, how it started. You would begin by whipping them. You'd put them against the pole, the, the, the criminal against a pole, and strip them of their clothing, and you would take a whip that had nine strands on it. They called it the cat of nine tails. And at the end of each one of the strands, there would be little pieces of bone or rock and, and those, uh, those pieces of bone were intended to grip onto whatever it is they landed on. So the, the person who was doing the whipping, the soldier who was doing the whipping, would whip the person, and then the, 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 the strands would stick and dig into the skin. And then as the soldier would pull back the cat of nine tails, it would rip stripes, basically, off of the, off of the victim. Jesus had this done to him repeatedly. They were whipped, and then it would tear strips off of him. And so by the time you're done with this, you basically get a a victim who's got their back skin totally gone and and their their blood is just exposed to the the whole world. Sometimes they will put the robe back on and let it dry and then rip it back off just to extend the suffering for for the person. Um, After that, the criminal was required to carry their own their own cross beam. So when we look at the cross, there's a vertical beam and there's a horizontal beam. This this horizontal beam was the beam that they would carry, usually through crowds. And the reason for this is because uh, the crowds needed to have an opportunity to jeer and to spit on and mock the prisoner. The whole form of crucifixion was intended to be a public disgrace. 
<clears throat> so they would carry this crossbeam through the crowds, being spit on, eventually get to the location where they had the vertical beam. <clears throat> In this case, Jesus gets to Golgotha, carrying his own cross, cross beam. He gets there, and when they get there, <clears throat> they fasten this crossbeam up on the vertical beam. Now, the way they do that <clears throat> is usually by bending the, the, the vertical beam down, fixing the crossbeam to it, and nailing the hands and the feet into the beams themselves. Um, they used nails. Sometimes they ro used ropes, but usually used nails so that the hands wouldn't rip, wouldn't rip out during the time, and they'd have to do it all over again. So when Jesus gets up on this cross, he's probably got nails in, in, in his hands between the bones that come together so that it, it'll stick. And, and his other hand, same thing, he's got nails through his feet, and he is having to pull himself up. The way that you, you breathe on the cross is that you pull yourself up so that you can, so you can get a breath. Your, your lungs actually are collapsing because of the posture you're in. So you have to pull up on your arms and push up with your legs, and then you have to breathe, and then you go back down, and then you have to push up to breathe and then go back down. So sometimes they put a little seat on the, on the cross. We don't know if Jesus' uh, cross had that or not, but the reason they put a seat on there is not because they were trying to be nice to you. They put the seat on there to try to extend the suffering. They want you to be up there for a long time. And when you're up there, you usually do it on, on main roads so that everyone can see you. In fact, that's one of the main goals of crucifixion, as I said, is humiliation. They put you on main roads so when people go by, they can mock and ridicule you. In fact, Jesus had a sign above his head that stated in a number of different languages that he was the king of the Jews, mocking basically, like, look at us Romans, we even kill your king. It's also a deterrent. You know, if you walk by somebody and, and they're being crucified by this on the side of the road, you look at that and think, well, I don't, I don't really want to be in that situation. I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. I mean, they did that during the Nazi days where they would uh, find um, French resistance and they would take the French resistance they caught and they would hang them in the streets of Paris. So everybody who would walk by would realize that if you're part of the resistance, this is what's going to happen to you. And that's what they did. The Romans were cruel and, and, and difficult, and this, was served, this served a deterrent. It says Jesus was crucified. This, all this stuff happened to him, and it says that Jesus was crucified between two criminals. John really wants to point that out because it's, a, it's, it's an allusion back to uh, Isaiah 53, which is this uh, song about a servant who's going to come and be a Messiah, and he's going to free his people from sin. And so uh, in Isaiah 53, verse 12, you get this phrase, he, the, the suffering servant, was numbered with the transgressors. And so John is trying to point back, did you remember Isaiah 53? This is the fulfillment of that now. In fact, John, as you'll see through this entire passage, is trying to say, look at all the places that the Old Testament is fulfilled in what's happening here. It's almost like God knew that this was going to happen. So let's continue on. Verse 19, Pilate, we'll explain who he is in a second. He had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greeks, the Aramaic was the language of the people of that region. Latin was uh, an, a little bit of an official language among, among the Greeks. And, and the Greek language itself was the kind of trade language. So in other words, everybody who walked by, there was a language that they knew, right? Verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, 
We don't want you to write king of the Jews. But that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. I mean, you've gotten it all wrong, Pilate. You've written the the wrong thing. It's going to make people think that he was actually the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered in verse 22, what I've written, I've written. Like, you guys are just going to have to deal with this. I'm not changing... I'm not changing the sign. Now, there's a reason he doesn't want to change the sign. But in order to understand it, you've got to understand a little bit about Pilate and his relationship with the Jewish people. Uh, Pilate uh, was the Roman governor of Judea. Basically, that's like saying that he is the premier of a particular province, the premier of British Columbia. He's the governor of Judea, and he had a really contentious relationship with the Jews. He He was part of the Roman government that was an occupying force in the land there. And so when he first came in, right, just to prove where his allegiances lied, he came in and he um, had big flags that had Caesar's image on them, okay? And he came in and just touted that I am a man of Caesar, the conquering king, and you are his subjects. Well, of course, the Jews don't like that kind of show of force. They don't like that show of allegiance. And so he and the, the Jews rebelled and they got very upset about that whole thing. Uh, they, they fought with him. They got to the point where they were willing to die rather than give in to his, to, his, uh, to his rule. So all throughout Pilate's reign over the Jews, there was a massive, massive strife. Anything that he would do, they'd argue about. And sometimes they would go above his head and make reports back to Caesar. Do you know what Pilate's doing in our region? Do you know what Pilate's doing in our region? And they would never submit to him. They, they actually wanted to take up arms against him as much as they could. Now, you need to understand this. This would basically be like if, um, if Donald Trump decided that he was going to come and rule British Columbia, and he came in and he was draped in an American flag, and he'd get talking about the greatness of the United States to all of these Canadians. I mean, if that happened, even the Mennonites would be saying, like, where's my gun? So this is, this, is, this is the kind of vibe that was going on among the Jews at that, at that time in that region. And so the problems in Judea didn't help Pilate's status with Caesar. I mean, he, Caesar would have put Pilate in charge so that Pilate uh, could have kept the peace. He doesn't want to think about this far-off land, Caesar. He doesn't want to think about this far-off land that has nothing to do with him. Just, just govern it right, Pilate. I'm sick and tired of hearing that things aren't going well there. And so when Pilate is uh, supposed to hand Jesus over to the Jews, the Jews want him to be crucified. And Pilate's like, I don't understand why. I don't want to do this. I don't see anything wrong with him. But the Jews in, in John 19, just before our passage here, in John 19, verse 12, this is what they say. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. We're, we're going to tell Caesar on you. If you don't give us what we want, we're going to report it again to Caesar. And you know what he's going to do. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. You can hear their language. They're, they're putting Pilate in a pickle. They're putting him in a situation where he, he can't win. He has to give in to what they want. He doesn't want to give in to what they want. He never wants to give in to what they want. But he has to. And so now, after this, he's looking for a way to stick it to them. He wants to figure out, how can I still kind of win, even though they got me to do this thing? I know what I'll do. I'll write, King of the Jews. 
on the sign. That way, everybody who walks by, everybody who comes by will say, wow, the Romans killed the Jewish king. So you can understand why the, the Jews here are like, what? That's not what you should write. You should write that he claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, nah, I mean, it's written. I, would, I don't have another pen. I don't know if I can find something to write on. So the sign's gonna have to say there, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Here's the interesting part about this is that what you find here is that what Pilate intended for evil, right? He, he, he is a vindictive guy. What he intended to be uh, political posturing and sticking it to the Jews, what he intended for evil, God actually intended for good because that sign, the king of the Jews, is true, right? He meant it to be a mockery, and the Jews disagreed with it, but what has forever been recorded in the history of the world is that Jesus was on a cross, and he was called the king of the Jews. This theme of what people intending for evil, God intending for good, actually continues on in the passage. Let me show you another place where this happens. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that scripture might be fulfilled. That said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. In the ancient world, in, in, in Israel at this particular time, uh, people didn't have closets of clothes like you and I do, right? They didn't wake up in the morning, get out of their bed, and look, look at the, the reams of clothing on their, on their shelves or in their drawers and think, hmm, what should I wear today? Should I wear blue or purple or wh whatever it is? What should I wear? They didn't have that. They usually had two undergarments, right? Like two pairs of underwear, but their underwear was different, okay? It wasn't tight-fitting to their body. It was actually a big, long T-shirt. So a big, long t-shirt is an undergarment. If you were rich, you had two of those. Super rich, you might have three. Okay, so one big, long undergarment. The other things that they would have would be a cloak. So uh, a, a robe that goes over that particular undergarment. And they would walk around being covered by both of those things. Uh, a belt, sandals, and a head covering. So five pieces of clothing. Undergarment, robe, belt, sandals, head covering. Four of those, not the undergarment, four of those are divided between four prisoners, or sorry, four soldiers. And the reason soldiers would do that is because, because nobody had these things, they were very valuable. If I had a belt, I would be able to sell that belt. I could either keep it myself or I could sell it. So very common for soldiers who were overseeing crucifixions to basically, you know, take the clothes off the body so that they can they can uh, resell the products on the black market or they themselves could keep it. I mean, it's really dark. You hear, you know, it's like you seeing somebody, you know, dying in a suit at an open casket funeral and saying, hmm, that's a nice suit. I think I'll take it. Like, it's really dark and, and very selfish. But here they are. They take these four elements of clothing and there's one left, this undergarment. And they're like, wow, that's a really nice undergarment. Uh, we, should, we should take it. So we should take that off, Jesus, and, and, and they do. But they said, let's not rip it. There's four of us. Let's not rip it in four pieces. Let's just 
figure out, you know, we'll, by lot, you know, who will draw the shortest straw. Whoever gets the shortest straw, they get, they get the undergarment. Now, um, casting lots was a way to determine, you know, God's will, but casting lots was also a way to determine something like this. We do this sometimes ourselves. But what's interesting about this is that these guys intend this action, freely chosen by them, to be a, a kind of a, a dark, vindictive kind of action. It's an evil thought. It's, it's a bad thing to steal the clothes off of a, of a dying man. And yet God predicted and fulfills through their free actions his word. And that's why you get that passage where, where it says that the, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And he quotes Psalm 22, verse 16 to 18. Dogs dog surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That was written hundreds of years before that happened. So what do we say? Well, what sinful men intend for evil, God intends for good. Even in the darkest moment in the history of the world, the killing of God, what sinful men intend for evil, God intends for good. In other words, the, the chaos around them was totally under control. You know, some people, if you talk to them, they think that Jesus was basically caught in the political machinations of the Roman Empire, that he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But when you, when you read John's gospel, you realize that he sees things very differently. Jesus was no unwitting victim. He didn't just get caught off guard. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what was going to happen when he went there. And he still did it. A few years ago, I, was, uh, I had to get my uh, wisdom tooth out. But my dentist was... Um, he was sick or he was out of town, and so he referred me on to another dentist. He said, oh, they'll take care of it. It's going to be great. So I went into this dentist I'd never seen before. i got to tell you something. I, I don't respond um, very well to the Novocaine. Uh, I actually need to have a lot of Novocaine, right, like horse levels of Novocaine in my mouth. And so if I go to a new dentist, it's something I usually have to tell them. Well, I told this new dentist, just so you know, uh, usually take a lot of Novocaine. And this particular lady, she was like, oh, okay. And so she added a little bit more Novocaine to it. But as we got going, I, at first I, I was like, yeah, it, it'll work. She said, can you feel that? And I was like, well, a little bit. And she said, oh, it, it'll take effect as time goes on. But as time went on and she took her drill out and started drilling through my, my tooth to try to break it up and rip it out of my face, uh, I felt every single thing. I was laying there in the chair thinking to myself, uh, this might be what hell is like. Uh, or at the very least, I know Christians throughout the world who have suffered like this, where people drill holes through their teeth without any kind of, uh, any kind of uh, medicine to, to dull the pain. Now, had you told me, in fact, I was sitting there and thinking to myself, had, had I known before I got here that this is what it was going to be like, I never would have come. I'm like that basically whenever the dent I have to go to the dentist. I would never go if I knew, right? Nobody would because they're dentists. But that's just a, a minor pain. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen when he went to the cross. He knew exactly 
what he was going to face. He had planned it before the foundations of the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit deciding that this is what we're going to do to save the world. We're going to create a world that could fall into sin, and this is what we're going to do to display our glory and save the world. And he knew it, and he did it anyway. I find that remarkable. When the, when the biblical writers have to reflect on that, and the characters in the book of Acts have to reflect on why it is that he did that, you get these kinds of statements. So Peter is giving his first sermon after Jesus is risen from the dead. He's giving his first sermon to a bunch of people who've come along, heard the day of Pentecost. People are speaking in language, languages that they shouldn't be able to speak in, and they're declaring the word of God, and everyone's like, what's going on? And Peter jumps up on his soapbox, and he says, you know how, oh, excuse me, uh, this man, was handed over to you, Acts 2.23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God planned this. I mean, you were wicked and you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You get another sermon Two chapters later in the book of Acts, where Peter and John are praying after they've been released from prison, and they say, indeed, Acts 4.27, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It's never a surprise. Jesus willingly died at the hands of evil men to fulfill the Trinity's eternal plan. So here's the thing. If the worst event in the history of the world, the killing of God, if the most outrageous, out-of-control event in the history of the world is completely under the control of a sovereign God, and so is everything we face today. You think coronavirus is as big as the death of God? Do you think that the challenges that we face economically are as big as the death of God? If God is in control of the bigger, he's certainly in control of the lesser. And now more than ever, you and I need to have an attitude towards what we're facing that even though it looks like everything's going haywire, everything's out of control, none of it surprises our God. He is using it, in fact, to work out his eternal purposes. I was at a conference a number of years ago and there's, they had this like artist who was doing this really cool thing. Uh, she had a, a, a lamp that was... Uh, put on, a, a, it was like a box of sand. And uh, some of the sand was a bit wet and she was moving the sand around and, and it was projecting up on a screen behind her. It just looked like a pile of sand and when she started, she was just pushing sand to different directions. And I was like, this is really fun. Thank you for inviting us to watch this woman push sand around on her little box. This is great. But as she pushed more and more sand, you started to see images appear. And eventually, what looked like massive chaos on, on the screen initially came into clear view. And you realized, oh my goodness, she's, she's an artist and she's painting a picture. Basically, by moving the sand around, she's painting a picture that looks like a lion 
that looks like the cross, that looks like whatever. And isn't that the way it is? <laughs> looks like chaos. It does. It looks like it's being projected on a screen and we have no idea where in the world this is going. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know how we're going to live for two months inside our house with that sister. It's evil, this thing. But what's evil around us, God often intends for good. Look, I've got a second point here. The first is this under control. The second and last one is it, it's finished. You can look at verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, isn't that great, by the way, that John calls himself the disciple Jesus loved? What do you call yourself, right? Oh, Jesus would never love me. Disciple, you're no, you're, you're the disciple Jesus loved. I love that. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, verse 28, knowing that everything had now been finished. Again, a recognition of the knowledge of Jesus. Knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. These hyssop plants were like these branches that had kind of a nest that you could form in the end of it. And so they take this sponge and they dip it in, in vinegar, wine vinegar. Not good drink. You don't want to drink vinegar. It's not a good idea. If you ever have, you're like, ooh. I know there are diets that have you drink vinegar. Don't do them. But you put this sponge on the end of it and they pass it up to Jesus, Right? And there he is, he takes it, and, and he, he drinks it. And then as soon as he drinks it, he bows his head. Verse 30. And he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. You notice he said, I thirst? Like, what does he mean by that? Why is that there? What is Mark, why does John point that out? It's really actually an interesting fact. In Psalm 69, verse 19... The psalmist describes a great trial and difficulty for uh, the, the person he's describing, for himself, in fact. He says, I'm, I'm basically, everything's going wrong for me, and nobody's around to help me. Here's, here's how that passage goes, Psalm 69, verse 19. You know how I'm scorned, disgraced, shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart, left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none for comforters, but I found none. And they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Again, written hundreds of years before. But the point that he's making is, I am left all alone. I have been completely abandoned. And that's when John puts that in this passage. He's saying, I thirst. What he's saying is that Jesus is quoting this psalm and saying, I'm like that, that Davidic person who's being pointed out in the psalm. I have been abandoned by everybody. And more, most importantly, I've been abandoned by, by God. The other gospel writers use the phrase, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22, that Jesus quotes that to try to indicate that 
He's experiencing the full abandonment of God. God is turning his back on him. Whatever that means, he is turning his back on him because Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 5 said, has become sin for us. This whole idea of being abandoned, and it is a cosmic abandonment. This whole idea of abandonment gives you an idea as to what Jesus means when he says it's finished. That Greek word for it is finished is tetelestai. And what it means literally, it's in the perfect tense, and what it means literally is it has been and forever will be completed. That the action that Jesus has done on the cross is, has completed it, and it forever will stand as completed. That in other words, that you're standing before God. If you're a Christian and you receive his gift by faith, if you're a Christian, what God says over you is righteous, justified, like Jesus. In fact, the biblical writers use the language that you are in Christ Jesus, that when God looks on you, he sees Jesus. And that will always be the case. It has been and forever will be finished. What's interesting to me is that so many of us, when we go to church for a long time, we hear that repeated over and over again. We hear that language and we're like, yeah, yeah, that's true. But the, tr but the truth is, you and I don't really believe it. Like this is a total different view of religion than many of the other religious uh, views in the world. I mean, in Buddha, his last words were a strive, strive on untiringly. Like what, what should you do now that I'm dying, says the, says the great Buddha? You should work as hard as you can to try to make it to that next level, to that nirvana. But what does Jesus say in his last words? It has been and forever will be finished. There's no work left to be done. I've done it. There's nothing you can add. And you and I, we hear that, and we hear it repeatedly, and we're like, yes, yes, we nod our heads to it. We say we believe it, but our behavior usually says something else. Deep inside, we think there's something more to do. Tim Keller has this lovely little um, perspective. He says, look, there's four, basically four different ways that you and I can act in ways that deny that we believe it's finished. The first way, he said, is uh, we believe that Jesus gives us a second chance. What's the gospel? What's the good news? Well, Jesus is going to give me a second chance. In other words, I failed everything before, and now Jesus is going to lift me up, and he's going to place me in this position where I can work really hard, and I can prove to him that I'm worthy of this. Does Jesus give you a second chance? Well, yes. But what do you do with it? Well, you fail. Then what does he give you? Third chance. Yeah, you know what? Let's just say that he gives you a thousand chances and even if you fail all of them, it is finished. There's no works that you're going to do that are going to add anything to what he's done. It is finished. One of the other errors that we make is we say things like, I'm, I'm no good. One of the, that, that betrays a kind of view that we have that I need to be better in order to prove to God that I deserve all of this. He's done this for me. Now, now oh, Lord, I want to be as good a person I can so that I, I basically earn it. 
the end of the at the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan, you've got the the characters been saved by the actions of all these others saying, "Tell me, tell me that I was worth all the actions. Tell me I was worth it." And we act sometimes like that, and we never meet up to it. So we look in the mirror and we say to ourselves, "You're not good enough yet. Work harder." The problem is we don't see ourselves the way that God sees us in Christ. It's finished. God will never see you more beautifully than he sees you now in Christ, no matter what you do. It is finished. Third way that he points out that we get this wrong is, is we say, not I'm no good, but they're no good. Oh, look at all those people out there doing their horrible actions. Look at all those church people. They get everything wrong all the time. They're not good Christians, not like me. They point out the errors in everyone else, betraying, of course, that we think it's a performance contest, right? I've got to prove that I belong in the lifeboat here. I've got to prove that I belong to get the ventilator here. I've got to prove that my life is worth it. Therefore, I'm going to do all these things, and they're not doing them. Hey, it's finished. It's finished for you. It's finished for them. It's finished. The last error we sometimes say is, look, I, I need something else. Yes, Jesus is great, and he's provided so much, but there's other things that we can have in our lives that will make us really happy. And usually the things that you and I point to here in our culture are things like, what if I had more money? Oh, if I had the more money. I want to be, have Jesus, yes, good Christian, but then I need to pursue the money because the money is going to actually take care of me as much perhaps as Jesus is. Uh, what if I, well, I may be single and I say, well, I, I need a spouse because that's going to make me really happy. Or I need to have a particular job and that's going to make me happy. Or I need to have beauty and that's going to make me happy. Yes, yes, Jesus, sure, but this other stuff is going to be great. If I add that to Jesus, it'll be fantastic and my life will finally be my best one now. But you know what? It's finished. There's nothing you can add. None of those things will ever be as great as he is. You know what you have in Jesus? You, you know what you have, right? Look, no matter what happens in these days and the days ahead of us, one thing is for sure, we know God is working out his plan for our good. We know it. And we know that it has been and forever will be finished. Let's continue to pray together as a church family. Why don't you join me? Heavenly Father, we need you. We are so thankful that you say in Psalm 46 that you are our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. And we are certainly in a time of trouble and so, Lord, we're depending on you. And you also say that instead of being consumed by our anxiety in Philippians 4, that we should instead lay our requests before you. And so, Father, we have all kinds of things on our minds and our hearts and we wanna bring them before you. Lord, we think of the people who are sick with COVID-19 those in our community, those across Canada and around the world. And so, Father, we pray that you'd have mercy on their bodies and that you would heal them quickly. And we pray for all those in the medical community who are working alongside um, these people who are hurting and sick. And so, Lord, would you protect each one and their families?
Would you provide adequate medical equipment, again, locally and across our country and across the world? I pray that there would be cooperation instead of competition. And Lord, we pray that at this time, that people would be open to hearing about who you are. And so I pray for those in the medical community, if they're Christians, that they would be able to share the light of the gospel with the people they meet. I don't know exactly how that could look. I don't know if that's through words or deeds or both, but Lord, I pray that people would be open to hearing who you are and they, their lives would be changed and transformed. And Father, this week has been stressful in our school community. And so we pray for the teachers and education assistants and all of the administrators, everyone working in the school community. Lord, they have to learn how to teach online, which is something they haven't necessarily been used to. And so Father, would you help them to know how to teach effectively and how to reach out to the families that they are caring for. And I pray for those parents who haven't taught at home before, that you would calm our families, that you would help them to learn in this new way, as we're all doing. Even in church, we're learning a new way. Father, we pray for our business community. We know that businesses are suffering, employers, employees, people are being laid off. Lord, would you show us that you love us and would you provide for us in ways that maybe are unexpected, ways that show us that you see and care about every detail of our lives. Thank you for our tithes and offerings. Lord, we know you love us and care for us. And so we pray that as a church, we would use this money wisely for your honor and glory. And we would know uh, ways to use this going forward because it looks a little different than we have in the past. Father, there are so many things we could pray for, and so I pray that as a church community, we would get together in our family groups or by Zoom or by email, and we would continue to pray throughout the week. For now, Lord, we ask all these things in your amazing name, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people say, amen. We want to take a moment to give of our tithes and offerings. It's a way of worshiping God and reminding ourselves that he has given us everything good. And so I know it looks a little different, and so if you're able to give, that would be so great. Please don't feel obligated if you're new to Northview or this is your first time here, but if you're part of our church family, we would encourage you to keep giving. Our first choice would be for you to give online and you can text give to the number at the bottom of your screen, or you can go to our main page, northview.org, and there's a button that says give online. Or if you're more comfortable giving by check, if that's the way you're used to, you're very welcome to mail it to our offices on Downs Road or to drop it off during office hours. Let's continue worshiping in song.
Next week is Easter, and of course we were hoping to gather together physically in our church buildings as we've done for a long time. Handshaking, hugging, that would have been so great. But obviously that's not the case. We're going to gather together online next week, and so we would encourage you to invite your friends and family to our Good Friday services and Easter Sunday services, and you'll see all that information through all of our accounts, the webpage and social media and all those things. So we'll see you next week for that. Also, if you would like an update on how COVID-19 has affected our church, the elders have put together an update and you'll be able to find that on our main page, northview.org. We're going to close and send you into this week with scripture. So this is a passage based on Psalm 138 and it says this, Go with confidence into the days ahead, trusting in God's unfailing love and faithfulness. God will not abandon you, for you are the work of his hands, his own creation and his love endures forever. So go and joy to love and serve the Lord. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>